Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another study of the biblical book of Romans from a full preterist perspective. Last time we discussed the meaning of the two phrases, since the creation of the world and what has been made, as they are used in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. We saw how they are not talking about the creation of the nation of Israel at the Exodus, as some of our fellow preterists have suggested, but rather are referring to the creation of the heavens and earth as described by Moses in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. This time, as promised, we will be looking at the subject of baptism as it is dealt with in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4. Many preterists have tossed baptism aside as a relic of the past, but I believe that is throwing baptism out with the bathwater, throwing the good out with the bad. As we will see in this lesson, there is a definite place for water baptism in the church today after the eternal kingdom arrived in AD 70. Before we get started, though, let's ask God's blessing for our study. O holy God, perfect, pure, and righteous in all your ways, we praise you for all that you are and for all that you have done to save us and sanctify us for your service. May your Holy Spirit teach us and guide us and illuminate your word in our hearts as we prayerfully study it. We only want to know the truth and follow it with all our hearts. Keep our feet on the narrow pathway of your truth. Help us discern your truth so that we can turn away from error and deception. Help us to properly apply it to us today so that it will purify and sanctify our lives to serve you faithfully. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we want to look at what kind of baptism that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where he talks about being baptized into Christ Jesus and being buried with him into his death. And he uses the word baptized, the verb form of it, uh, twice, and the noun form of it, baptism, uh, once there. So three times the word baptize or baptism is used in those two verses. Since several of the collective body advocates are using the arguments in Tom Holland's book, which is called Contours of Pauline Theology, a radical new survey of the influences on Paul's biblical writings, uh, since several collective body guys are using Tom Holland's book, to support their collective body interpretation of Romans chapters 5 through 11, I thought it might be appropriate for us to interact with Holland's book a little bit here on this podcast, especially uh, in regard to his view of baptism and how he applies that collective body view to the idea of baptism here. So this week I read three of the chapters in his books chapters 3, 5, and 7, which have the most relevance to our study of Romans chapter 6. Plus, I skimmed through the rest of the book, looking up his specific treatment of Romans chapter 6 and baptism as listed in the scripture and subject indices. It's interesting that Tom Holland was very much aware of John A.T. Robinson's book on the body, but only used a few parts of Robinson's material to build his collective body paradigm. And of course, uh, John H. Robinson was one of the first ones that I'm aware of who taught that idea of a collective body. And it seems like uh, Max King and others uh, were following the work that John H. Robinson had done on that. And it seems that Tom Holland also is very much aware of it and is using parts of it to build his own 
kind of collective body paradigm. Tom Holland clearly pointed out that he unequivocally rejected the sacramental literalism and universalism of John A.T. Robinson, however. I had forgotten that John A.T. Robinson was a universalist. Perhaps that helps explain why Max and Tim King and their publishing company, Bimillennial Press, has reprinted Robinson's book on the body, which teaches that collective body view and evidently also pushes toward universalism. They reprinted it. They must see Robinson's collective body view as supportive of their universalism. I remember seeing Robinson's book on the shelf in Max King's office many years ago when he was writing his big book on the resurrection. And when I asked him about it, he told me that Robinson's book had been a major influence on his development of the collective body concept. It is no surprise, therefore, to see that Max has now followed John A.T. Robinson right on into universalism. There are many problems with Tom Holland's explanation of Romans chapter 6. However, it is not the collective body typological framework that is the problem. It is the extreme way he applies that framework to Paul's soteriology and eschatology that puts him into conflict with not only Paul's theology, but with the rest of the New Testament as well. For Holland... The collective body motif is everything. In every sociological and eschatological text, he finds a collective body application just waiting for him to share it with the world. It is the driving force behind his current research and writing, just as it was for Max King and all the other collective body advocates. Tom Holland is a reformed evangelical theologian from Wales. In United Kingdom, he appears to be very much in agreement with Reformed or Calvinist covenant theology. I suspect many of the Church of Christ preterists would not be comfortable with his Calvinist covenant theology, nor with his non-immersion mode of baptism. What we also need to remember here is that Tom Holland does not agree with the preterist view nor are there any preterists who agree with every aspect of his collective body view and how he applies it to sacramentology, ecclesiology, soteriology, and eschatology. They all pick and choose what parts of Holland they want to use. I suspect that would be somewhat disturbing to Holland to see how some preterists are using his collective body paradigm to support their preterist collective body resurrection view. Holland claims to be a conservative evangelical Presbyterian who is reformed in his soteriology. He teaches at the Wales Evangelical School of Theology, which is located in Brentarian, Bridgend, South Wales, in the United Kingdom. One of the Internet reviewers, his name is Guy Davies, in July of 2006, reviewed Holland's book, and had this to say about it. And I've got the link for that book review here in the lesson outline, so if you get the lesson outline PDF, you'll have the link for this book review. But he says about Holland's book, Holland takes his case too far by arguing that the great servant's song in Isaiah 53 was not used by the apostles to interpret the death of Christ. Matthew 20, verse 28, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, and Acts 8, verses 32 through 35 would suggest otherwise. Holland's key idea is that Paul's thinking was radically shaped by Old Testament teaching on New Exodus and the Passover. Accordingly, Christ's work on the cross is understood as a Passover sacrifice that accomplishes the New Exodus the redemption of the world from the power of sin, death, and Satan. The writer detects the influence of Ezekiel's vision of the new temple on Paul's view of the cross as a propitiatory sacrifice. Ezekiel's apparent conflation 
of the Passover with the Day of Atonement is claimed to be the source of Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. A recurring theme in this book by Holland is that interpreters have tended to view Paul through the lenses of Western individualism. Holland tries to redress the balance by insisting that the body of sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, should be understood corporately as humanity under the power of sin and the devil. He also tries to argue that baptism in Romans chapter 6 and the harlot of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 and following are corporate categories. I did not find Holland's exegesis altogether convincing. There is certainly a corporate dimension to Paul's thought, Romans 5, verse 12 and following, as well as Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, etc. It would have been better if the author had spent more time unpacking those passages rather than trying to establish a corporate meaning of text that are better understood on an individual or personal level. Holland sees justification as God's declaration that he has taken his people into a covenant relationship with himself. Contrary to N.T. Wright, justification does not simply act as a boundary marker denoting those who are in covenant. Justification brings the people of God into the covenant. Justification is a corporate category, according to Holland. God justifies his covenant people rather than individuals. Christians appropriate this justification personally when they believe in Christ. Holland maintains the Reformer's insight into justification as a forensic declaration that sinners have been put right with God apart from their works. But he insists that justification is also relational because it refers to the creation of a covenant between the Lord and his people. An appendix on the Reformed faith and justification discusses this matter further. The downplaying of the individual aspect of justification by faith in Holland's treatment is to be regretted. Paul is capable of describing justification in deeply personal language. See Galatians 2 verse 16 and 20 as an example. Holland's book, The Contours of Pauline Theology, is a helpful exploration of the Old Testament roots of the Apostles' theology. Holland succeeds in demonstrating that Paul was a true Hebrew Christian and no Hellenist. He exposes some of the flaws in in the new perspective thinking. His own proposals on justification demand careful thought and attention but many will find his emphasis on corporate justification hard to swallow. As has been suggested, the author sometimes over-eggs his pudding by taking his arguments too far. Holland does not have the literary flair of Tom Wright, few do, and the book sometimes lacks verve and clarity. But this work is the fruit of much study and reflection. It should be read by all who wish to keep abreast of the ever-challenging and stimulating field of Pauline theology. And again, I have the link for that book review on the lesson outline here. If you'd like to read the rest of his review, I only took out a few paragraphs of it. Well, I want to pick up on this theme here of the book review where he says that Holland takes his arguments too far. And I believe a good example of that is in his treatment of baptism here in Romans chapter 6. And I want to note, first of all, that I'm not denying or rejecting the concept of the collective body in reference to the church. Instead, I embrace that idea as a true biblical concept. My only concern is how and where we apply that concept in the biblical text. And this is where all the differences between the collective body view and the individual body view show up. 
the advocates for the collective body view tend to see all the eschatological resurrection text as collective, while the individual body guys tend to see the eschatological resurrection as a group of individual saints being raised out of Hades at the same time. The whole group is raised at the same time, but the group is not referred to as a single body. It is instead a resurrection of dead ones plural, not the resurrection of the dead one, singular. That's a significant difference. But this is where the difference between the two views is most clearly found, in the way each view interprets the various resurrection texts. Both views believe in the concept of a collective body, but we do not apply that concept the same way in the various resurrection texts. And both views believe there are individuals that make up the collective body, but we differ on how those individuals are treated in the various resurrection texts. So it all boils down to how we interpret the individual resurrection text. The collective body guys tend to force-fit the collective body concept into all of the resurrection text, regardless of whether it is actually there or not. While the individual body advocates tend to interpret each text individually, unless there is something in the context which necessitates a collective body application. And that is my complaint here with Tom Holland regarding his interpretation of baptism here in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4. He tends to see the collective body concept under every rock and behind every tree. He assumes it's there in every text. He feels no burden to prove that it is there, but rather only to explain how he sees it there. In regard to Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4, Holland rejects the idea of water baptism being involved here because Water baptism inevitably imposes individualism into the context and nullifies a collective body interpretation. He says that on page 149. He says, quote, Water baptism inevitably imposes individualism, end quote. And so he's got a presupposition there that is causing him to reject water baptism before he even looks at what the text actually says. Water baptism would violate his collective body view, which he believes is in the text, so therefore it can't be water baptism. Since he believes the Romans 6 context is totally collective in its application, the baptism that is mentioned in this context cannot be water baptism. Instead, he insists that it has to be some kind of baptism that will harmonize with his collective body concept that he assumes is there. That is circular reasoning. He first needs to prove that the collective body is actually there in the context before twisting the meaning of baptism to fit his assumptions and presuppositions. I want to read some statements from his book uh, in regard to his concept of corporate baptism. That's what he calls the uh, collective body concept of baptism which is not water baptism at all. It's speaking of uh, baptized with Christ at his crucifixion. In the crucifixion, we were baptized into him. That's his idea of corporate baptism. But he believes that Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, and several other similar verses in Paul's writings, listed here in the outline, are talking about this concept of corporate baptism. And I'm going to read some sections here that help us understand what he means by that. On page 148, he says, Baptism is not a reference to water, but to the one great event in which the Spirit made the Lord one with his people in the event of his vicarious atoning death. Then on page 151, he says, This problem is overcome once it is realized that alongside the baptism into Christ is the type of the baptism of the Israelites into Moses in their exodus. As Moses in the exodus from Egypt took out the people of God, for they were united with him through baptism in the Red Sea, 
So Christ takes those who have been baptized into union with him from the realm of sin and death. This baptism into Christ took place in his exodus. Luke chapter 9 verse 31, he actually even uses that word exodus in the Greek to speak of his departure that he was about to accomplish on the cross in his coming out of the realm of sin and death. It was a baptism into his death that all believers as a collective body experience in the same historic moment when Christ died on the cross. Then on page 151, he says, It was this baptism that brought the covenant community into existence. Therefore, if one asks, when did the church historically come into existence? The answer is, at the moment of Christ's death. For it was then that the Spirit baptized all members of the covenant community into union with their Lord and Savior. From then on, in terms of ultimate reality, no believer could experience anything apart from all other believers. For their union with Christ is such that all other believers are also partakers in Christ's saving work. I don't know if you caught all of what he's saying there, but that statement there on page 151, I think is very questionable. Because he's taking the position that the church had already come into existence at the cross rather than at Pentecost. And that's going to be controversial for a lot of people, uh, certainly unbiblical. But it has to be the case in order to justify his perspective here on the collective body in Romans chapter 6. He has to take this position in order to keep his collective body view alive in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. Well, it goes on to say on page 151 and 152, he says, What I am arguing for is that the baptism passages which we have considered here, which is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Ephesians 5, 27, Ephesians 4, 5, and Galatians 3, 27, and others, are speaking neither about water baptism nor even of Christ's baptism into his suffering even though these are important related themes, but he is speaking here about a baptism in which believers have shared in the death of Christ on the cross. And he says on page 154, the Jewish material did not look for a suffering Messiah whose death would bring about the salvation of the new covenant community. Paul saw the death of Jesus to be his exodus, and identified the moment of the birth of the community under its new representative to be in the moment of its Messiah's death. Thus all Christians have been baptized into his death. To be outside of that event is to be outside of Christ. Okay, so there we see how he's defining baptism in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. He sees it as a collective body baptism into Christ at the death of Christ on the cross, just like Moses had all the Israelites baptized into him at the Red Sea. Jesus had all the covenant community of his people baptized into him at the cross, even though there was no water baptism there at all at the cross. They were not water baptized. They were just baptized in some other metaphorical sense. That's the way he's taking this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Now, I would not be surprised if you have some difficulties with that. I certainly do. I have a lot of difficulties with it, and I'm going to explain why. There are two additional reasons why I believe Tom Holland is predisposed to reject the idea of water baptism here in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. It's not just because of his collective body paradigm. But in fact, I think these other two reasons may be why he developed the collective body paradigm in the first place, or at least may be two good reasons why he further developed it. The first reason is the fact that the Presbyterian denomination of which he is a member does not see the mode of baptism as being immersion, but rather sprinkling. Therefore, when Holland sees the word buried, in connection with baptism here in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, 
he has to work overtime to disconnect it from water baptism so that it will not conflict with his denominational view of the mode of baptism being sprinkling. He cannot have a burial in baptism because that looks like immersion. And that's not the mode of baptism that his denomination believes in. And so there's one reason why I think he's predisposed to reject the idea of water baptism there, because it would conflict with his mode of baptism in the Presbyterian Church. Secondly, his Presbyterian tradition of infant baptism or covenant baptism of children is also challenged by Paul's statements here about believers being baptized. The requirement of faith in order to be in Christ is tightly connected with baptism into Christ here in this context. That faith connection to baptism is in seeming conflict with his practice of infant baptism. Those are two apparent reasons why I believe Holland may be laboring so hard to interpret this baptism here as something other than water baptism. And those same two factors may also be part of the reason why he is so strongly motivated to develop this collective body approach to not only baptism, but to soteriology and eschatology as well. However, as we will show from several other commentaries, the context of Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 is not talking about a collective body being raised out of covenantal death by some kind of collective baptism at the cross. Instead, we will see that Paul is talking about the meaning that water baptism had for those individual Christians in their covenantal relationship with Christ. It is true that they were the collective body of Christ, and Paul does talk about the collective body later in the book of Romans, chapter 12. But that is not the focus in this context here in Romans chapters 5 through 7. Here is what some of the various commentaries have to say about the baptism that we find here in Romans chapter 6. In Douglas Moo's comments in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, in the book of Romans, he says, Paul argues in Romans chapter 6 verse 3, that death to sin is part and parcel of becoming a Christian. For baptism involves us with the death of Christ, a death that itself is a death to sin, as Paul will argue in verses 8 through 10. By introducing this teaching with the phrase, Or are you ignorant? Paul signifies that what he is saying has a basis in what the Roman Christians already know about baptism and Christian experience. Paul's reference is to the Roman Christians' water baptism as their outward initiation into the Christian existence. To be sure, a few scholars have denied any reference to water baptism here, arguing that baptize means immerse in a metaphorical sense, or that Paul refers to baptism in the Spirit or that he uses baptize as a metaphor for incorporation into the body of Christ. But without discounting the possibility of allusions to one or more of these ideas, a reference to water baptism is primary. By the date of Romans, baptize had become almost a technical expression for the rite of Christian initiation by water. And this is surely the meaning the Roman Christians would have given to the word. In Thomas Schreiner's commentary, in the Baker Commentary on the New Testament, he says, The reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who were baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians those who have put their faith in Christ. Thus, Paul is saying here that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ. For all Christians had received baptism. To posit that the baptism mentioned here is simply metaphorical, or baptism in the Spirit, rather than water baptism, is incorrect. Moo observes rightly that 
Paul normally uses the verb baptizine to refer to water baptism. Roman Christians would have inevitably thought of water baptism since it was the universal initiation rite for believers in Christ. Moreover, Paul probably loosely associated baptism with water and baptism by the Spirit, since both of these occurred at conversion. Thus, any attempt to distinguish between spirit baptism and water baptism in the Pauline writings goes beyond what Paul himself wrote. And in the footnote, he says, This is contra Stott, John Stott, who goes beyond the evidence by distinguishing between water and spirit baptism here. Stott is correct in saying that Paul was thinking of water baptism here, but it would never have occurred to Paul that baptism in water could be separated from baptism in the spirit. Next, I want to read the comments of Leon Morris in the Pillar New Testament Commentary on Romans. He says, Paul turns to baptism, here in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, which is perhaps surprising, but it helps him make his point emphatically. The word or points to the alternative to what he has just been saying. If his readers do not understand what it means to die to sin... They do not understand what baptism means, and baptism comes right at the beginning of the Christian life. His question implies that this is something the Roman Christians would be expected to know. Since Paul had not been to Rome, he plainly regards this as knowledge common to all Christians. We may perhaps miss something of what he is saying because, for us, baptized evokes liturgical associations. It points to a comforting and inspiring piece of ceremonial. But in the first century, while the verb could denote this ceremony, and Paul certainly means that here, to baptized evoked associations of violence. It meant immerse rather than dip. It was used, for example, of people being drowned or of ships being sunk. When it is applied to Christian initiation, We ought not to think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. It means death, death to a whole way of life. It is this that is Paul's point here. Christians are people who have died, and their baptism emphasizes that death. Death runs through this passage and is mentioned in every verse up to 13. We should not let the modern associations of baptism blind us to the point Paul is making so strongly here. He is saying that it is quite impossible for anyone who understands what baptism means to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life. The baptized have died to all that. That's a very powerful statement, I think. Next, I want to read uh, a statement here from Robert Haldane in his commentary entitled, An Exposition of the Epistle to the Romans on pages 244 and 45. He talks about what baptized into Jesus Christ means. By faith, believers are made one with Christ. They become members of his body. This oneness is represented emblematically by baptism. In baptism, they are also represented as dying with Christ. This rite, then, proceeds on the fact that they have died with him who bore their sins. Thus, the satisfaction rendered to the justice of God by him is a satisfaction from them, since they are constituent parts of his body. The believer is one with Christ as truly as he was one with Adam. He dies with Christ as truly as he died with Adam. Christ's righteousness is his as truly as Adam's sin was his. By a divine constitution, all Adam's posterity are one with him. And so his first sin is really and truly theirs. By a similar divine constitution, all Christ's people are one with him, and his obedience is as truly theirs as if they had yielded it and his death as if they had suffered it. When it is said that Christians have died with Christ, 
it is no more figurative than when it is said that they have died in Adam. I thought that was a very good statement on what it means to be baptized into Christ and to be baptized into his death and to be buried with him. But he's attaching that to water baptism, not to spirit baptism or to some kind of a collective body baptism that Tom Holland is trying to make it out to be here. Well, I think that's enough that we need to say about Tom Holland's book. I want to look a little bit more now at the origin of Christian baptism. All this discussion about baptism has probably raised a question in the back of our mind. Well, if this is water baptism here in Romans chapter 6, then how do we know it is, and how do we know it's speaking of of immersion, etc.? I mean, where does this kind of baptism come from? Why doesn't the Bible spell it out more and explain it more? Very good question, and I think there's some really good answers to that. So let's talk about the origin of Christian baptism. It should be apparent that John the baptizer was the guy who introduced it into the Jewish community in the first century, just before Jesus came on the scene and continued that practice of water baptism. And it should be just as apparent to us that John the Baptist didn't just pop onto the Jewish scene in AD 25 and say something like, Folks, I'm starting something totally new today that you have never seen before. It's called baptism, and here is how it goes. Well, he didn't do that. The very least we must admit is that baptism was familiar enough to the Jewish people of John's day that it didn't provoke any challengers in regard to its mode. The mode was not the issue with John's critics. It was who John was not claiming to be that bothered them. The Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. These words imply rather strongly that the Jews expected the Messiah, or one of his precursors, to baptize or purify the Jewish people in preparation for the coming of the Messianic kingdom. John was doing the very thing they expected only the Christ or Elijah or the prophet to do. Where did they get this expectation? Did the Old Testament prophets suggest anything of the sort? Yes, of course. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, Daniel 9, 24, Zechariah 13 and 14, as well as Malachi chapters 3 and 4. Numerous passages in the Old Testament talk about what the Messiah or his precursor would do to purify the people in preparation for the coming kingdom. So there are two things we can learn from this exchange between John the Baptist and the priest and Levites. One is that baptism, whatever its mode, was already familiar in the Judaism of that day. And secondly, that it was prophetically and eschatologically connected with the Messiah and his precursors. It seems very likely that John adopted the most common form of purification that was practiced in that day and attached the prophetic basis to it. So from the very beginning, John's baptism, which was the precursor of Christian baptism, had more than just Levitical roots. It was connected directly to the prophetic predictions about the Messiah and his kingdom. And the prophets gave it ethical and eschatological meaning. It was not just a preparation for the kingdom, it was a repentance, a baptism of repentance, an ethical and moral repentance, as well as preparation for entrance into the kingdom. John's baptisms took place in the Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, and Luke chapter 3, verse 3. This conformed to the Mosaic Law, which required flowing or living water to provide a valid purification. That was one of the reasons why Naaman the leper from Syria was baptized in the Jordan River in order to restore his health from the leprosy. One major difference between Jewish ritual immersion and Christian baptism 
has been mentioned by a number of scholars who have considered a possible relationship between the two. Jewish ritual immersion is purification, or to use the technically correct term, purificatory. Christian baptism, on the other hand, is initiating or initiatory. It is a one-time ritual that initiates the person into the faith, unlike the purification which happened repeatedly. Initiatory baptism, however, has its parallels in Jewish proselyte baptism, and three things were required of a proselyte to Judaism. Number one was circumcision, if he's a male, of course, the offering of a sacrifice, and thirdly, immersion in the mikvah, and of course, acceptance of the Torah and the law, etc., all the other laws that were required uh, after he had become a valid Jew. After the Roman destruction of the temple in AD 70, the sacrifice was no longer required. While the church confined its missionary activities to Jews, circumcision was not an issue. When it decided to reach out to Gentiles, however, the requirement of circumcision was abrogated. This left ritual immersion in the mikvah as the only applicable Jewish requirement of conversion. Ritual immersion, or baptism, became the central Christian initiatory rite. And I believe that if we study archaeology in the temple area, and I've done that in a study called The Origin of Baptism, it's available as a PDF, and you'll probably want to get that. But in that, I discussed the role of archaeology and historical information in Josephus and other first century writers about baptism. We'll notice that Jewish proselyte baptism seems to be a very close resemblance and relationship to Christian baptism. Jewish proselyte baptism was an immersion in a mikvah. A mikvah, of course, is the immersion pool that they dipped people in. I first learned about this ritual of tevila in a mikvah several years ago in my studies of Hebrew, Judaism, Talmud, and Jewish history under Orthodox rabbis, both in the synagogue and at the university and in the library. But for some unknown reason, very few books on Christian baptism say anything about Jewish proselyte baptism. This would be expected to be the case in books written by those who prefer sprinkling as the mode of baptism. They certainly have a vested interest in minimizing any connection between Christian baptism and the Jewish immersion ritual of proselyte baptism. But I did not expect the immersionists, like the Baptists and Church of Christ and some others, to deal so scantily with that evidence. Thankfully, there were some great exceptions to the rule in both camps, and I have noted some of those in my paper on the origin of baptism that you can get as a PDF if you'd like to read more about that, archaeological evidence and historical evidence. Part of the reason why the connection between proselyte baptism and Christian baptism was not taken more seriously was because there was some doubt as to whether proselyte baptism was even in practice in Judaism before John the Baptist came on the scene. But the historical and archaeological evidence that I quote in my paper show that it was in practice in Judaism before John the Baptist came on the scene. And a good evidence of that, of course, is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which talk about the Essenes there in the Qumran community practicing ritual immersion as an initiatory rite before John the Baptist came on the scene. And, of course, there's Talmudic evidence as well from pre-Christian times showing that not just the Essenes, but other Jewish sects practiced immersion and proselyte baptism. So proselyte baptism was being practiced before John the Baptist came on the scene. And so it's not surprising at all to see John the Baptist performing that very kind of a ritual, immersion in living water, in order to purify God's people in preparation for the coming of the kingdom. John the Baptist stated that his baptism was associated with fleeing from the wrath about to come and in preparation of repentance for participation in the gathering into the kingdom that was about to come. Both of these purposes 
have prophetic and eschatological connections. The Jews knew that before the Messiah and his kingdom came, they would need to be purified. They knew that because the prophets had talked about that. Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi especially had talked about that purification that would be needed in the last days just before the Messiah arrived on the scene. This assembling or gathering concept into the kingdom and preparation for it is deeply rooted in both Levitical legislation and in the Old Testament prophets and referred to repeatedly in the New Testament as the eschatological gathering or meeting. And so the Jews knew that before the Messiah came and gathered them into the new kingdom, they would need to be purified. What we must remember is that before any such assembly or gathering or festival, the Jews had to be purified. And this purification was an immersion in the mikvah. And we noticed archaeologically uh, several years back in the uh, Biblical Archaeology Review magazine, they showed pictures of the immersion pools that they found right there around the temple area. Just before you go into the temple, there was lots of immersion pools so that hundreds of people could be immersed real quickly and going on into the temple. It facilitated a lot of people getting into the temple very quickly. They have excavated and found a lot of those right there around the temple entrance. And it was an immersion. There was a purification in an immersion pool. They called it a mikvah. Since John the Baptist had this preparation for the kingdom idea in his teaching about baptism, it is a strong indicator about what mode of baptism he must have been practicing. The Jews would certainly have been familiar with and would have expected an immersion as the eschatological purification ritual. It's interesting that the Essenes purified themselves by immersion and they connected it with the soon coming kingdom as well. And so there we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community of Essenes another indication that immersion was, in fact, the mode of baptism that John the Baptist would have used. We might note here the statements in Ephesians chapter 4 which state there is one baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Both Jews who had their own purifications and the Gentiles who were required to go through the mikvah after circumcision had separate immersion rituals. For Jews, it was a cleansing or purification and repentance to renew their inheritance in the coming kingdom and to prepare them for celebration of the festivals or to cleanse them after some kind of defilement of the flesh. But they repeatedly went through those purifications, whereas the Gentiles went through the purification first as an initiatory rite called Jewish proselyte baptism. So for Gentiles, it was to purify them of their Gentile uncleanness and initiate their fellowship in the covenant community of true Israel. But Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, says that now, in Christ, there are not two separate rituals. Both Jew and Gentile enter fellowship into the church the same way. There is now only one baptism that both Jews and Gentiles observe alike. For the Jew, it symbolized a covenant renewal, a regrafting back into their olive tree, being born again from above, not just into Abraham's family, but this time into Christ's family, to God's family, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 3, verse 5, and into the spiritual family of Abraham. For the Gentile, it pictured a covenant initiation, a first grafting into the olive tree, and a rebirth into the spiritual family of Abraham. But the outward symbol was the same for both Jew and Gentile. And the spiritual blessings and fellowship it pictured was the same for both Jew and Gentile. So there were not two different baptisms into Christ. Both Jew and Gentile shared in the same covenant sign which grafted or regrafted them all into the one true olive tree. 
Now, in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Jesus mentioned water baptism there in connection with the kingdom, and he connected water baptism with repentance and being born again from above, as well as preparation for entrance into the kingdom. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's talked about it being born again when he was referring to it in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Well, a good question for us as preterists to ask is, now that 70 AD has come and gone and the kingdom is here now, do we still need to practice that initiatory rite that prepared them for entrance into the kingdom? And that is a valid question, and certainly a question which we need to responsibly answer. One way to determine whether something was destined to continue after AD 70 or not was to see whether the apostles bound it or did not bind it upon the Gentiles. Now, you might say, why is that important? Well, because anything given to the Gentiles by the apostles most likely was meant to be permanent in the kingdom for all ages to come. Apostle Paul was the champion of Gentile liberty. He absolutely would not allow Gentiles to be brought into bondage to anything that was destined to pass away at AD 70. He says this numerous times, especially in the books of Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, and Hebrews. In fact, he goes so far as to say that anyone who binds circumcision and law-keeping upon the Gentiles is accursed. They're separated from God. It was a different gospel. So Paul was very zealous to guard the freedom of the Gentiles from circumcision and law-keeping since he knew those things were about to pass away. It would be of no value to bring Gentiles under bondage to something that was about to pass away. And it would only repulse the Gentiles if they thought they had to submit to circumcision in order to be saved. So it would stand to reason that anything Paul does impose on the Gentiles must have been something that would endure throughout all ages of the kingdom. Otherwise, Paul would not have allowed it to be given to the Gentiles and not commanded them to observe it. Whatever was not bound on them was destined to pass away. So whatever was bound on them must have been something destined to continue in the church beyond AD 70. This principle is most clearly seen in the Judaizer controversy of the first century church and how the apostles, especially Paul, handled that controversy. Number one, it shows us how adamant Apostle Paul was against binding upon the Gentiles anything which was destined to pass away at AD 70, such as circumcision and the sacrificial system. Number two, once we see how protective Paul was concerning Gentile freedom from the law, we will then have full confidence and assurance that the things he did bind upon the Gentiles could only be things that were absolutely essential and destined to remain in the kingdom after 70 AD. Paul and all the apostles, just like Jesus, their teacher, were tightly focused on teaching and writing things that would guide the church not only until the age arrived, but even afterwards, for all generations of the ages to come. They reminded their followers to remember what Christ had taught and what they had taught, and to teach those things to faithful men who would keep on passing it on to successive generations. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. If all their teaching was going to change or cease at eighty seventy. Those are strange things for them to be saying, especially Apostle Paul when he said to Timothy, teach these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he said that right just before his death in 63 AD, just three years before the end of the age. Why was Paul so adamant about Timothy keeping on teaching those things until the very end? If they were not going to be applicable after the end, why did it need to be taught to faithful men who would be able to teach others 
who would be able to teach others, and so on and so on. The implication is that the things Paul was teaching, including baptism, were things that would be applicable to all generations of the church, even after the end of the age arrived. Well, we need to note here that baptism was performed on Gentiles and even commanded. In Acts chapter 10, Peter commanded Cornelius and his household to be baptized. But it was not the thing that cleansed their sins. Our hearts are cleansed by faith and by the blood of Christ. Notice in Acts chapters 10 and 11 that Cornelius was already pronounced clean before he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them before they were baptized. Baptism was a confession and testimony before men that we have entered into covenant with Christ. It is a covenant symbol or sign showing to the church and to the world that we are in covenant with Christ and that we have died to our old way of life in the world and have been resurrected spiritually to walk in newness of life. That symbolism still applies to us today because we're sinners saved by the grace of Christ just like they were. That symbolism still applies to us today. Nothing about that covenant symbolism was done away with at AD 70. We're still sinners and we still need that covenant. In view of Paul's intense protection of Gentile liberty from circumcision and law-keeping, it would be contradictory for him to practice this among the Gentiles before AD 70 and then revoke it afterwards. Granted, it may have a shift in meaning after AD 70, like the Lord's Supper did, but there is no indication that it was to cease. After AD 70, it is no longer a purification in preparation for the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom, but rather a purification in covenant union with the Messiah and inclusion in His fully arrived kingdom, which has all the benefits of justification and salvation wrapped up with it. Baptism was a covenant ritual to picture a covenant relationship or to bear testimony to the existence of a covenant relationship that had been established. It was a covenant symbol given to the Gentiles to symbolize the fact that they were entering into the same covenant that the Jews had with God. It was symbolic of a new birth and a change of status and condition. It was a symbol of their being raised up to live again after their old sinful lifestyle had died and been buried in union with Christ through the symbolic burial of baptism. Well, I think that's about all we have time for in this session. I hope that that has helped all of us understand the subject of baptism a little bit better. Be sure to email me and request the PDF on the origin of baptism. It's a very thorough and exhaustive study of the subject of how baptism came into practice among Christians, and you're going to want to take a look at that if you're the least bit unsure of what baptism is all about and what its origins were. Next time, we're going to take a look at the broader context of Romans chapters 5 through 7 to see what Paul is really talking about here in reference to dying to sin and the body of sin. I hope to show that it's not talking about a collective body at all, but rather talking about what happens to individuals as they initially become Christians and then persevere on into sanctification. So you might want to study those three chapters of Romans, chapters 5 through 7, before we get together here next time. Well, that will do it for this session. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. 
This teaching ministry depends on your donations and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future 